Good afternoon. It's Friday the 20th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today in the studio, Patrick Henningsman from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Good to be with you. Uh, and we're going to get straight on because we've got lots to get through today. Um, and we'll start off, well, are we vaccinating the world? This is what everyone's talking about right now. It's vaccines, wall-to-wall -wall coverage, every media outlet, every newspaper, all the politicians are talking about it. Uh, and not just the politicians. So here is Neil Basser, the Metropolitan Police's Counterterrorism Associate uh, uh, or Assistant Commissioner, sorry. Uh, and uh, well, he's been speaking out. He said there's a debate uh, for society to have about, a f about free speech and responsibility and people who are spreading misinformation that could cost people's lives. Now, uh, Patrick, there's lots to say about that first comment straight away. And uh, I mean, if we think back over the last six or eight months, uh, we've shown the evidence from Spy B that we need to create jeopardy. We need to use the media to create jeopardy. So who are the people who are spreading the most misinformation at the moment? Is it social media and individuals or is it corporate media uh, that uh, is being paid by the government to promote a government narrative? Isn't this the conversation we've been having for so long, for years, in fact, with every major sort of event or incident? Uh, constantly we see the government and there's sort of third-party organizations, fact-checking organizations, wanting to put the blame on uh, people on the internet for spreading disinformation. This is the big threat to public safety, when in fact, for every major incident and event we have that we experience, from war all the way down to the domestic level, it's mainstream media and government that are the main sources of misinformation, public misinformation, and also, in the case of what you're mentioning, Mike, putting lives at risk. Well, uh, and in fact, we have been suggesting and arguing quite strongly that, uh, that not only were lives put at risk, but lives have been lost as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, so Basu went on. Uh, he said, I'm worried that the radicalization of some people, of some of the most vulnerable people in our society, namely our children, is happening both from the Islamist and extreme right wing ideologies. So he is uh, interested, he said, in this area because Islamist and far-right groups are using false COVID-19 claims to groom uh, young people and to groom recruits. So there's definitely a, an effort here to, to, to attach... Uh, to attach... Uh, Skepticism. To, oh, yeah. uh, as an extremist ideology and to attach mm -hmm. it to uh, right-wing and Islamist extremism. Yeah, they're trying to blend everything together now into one sort of big slop. You know, of uh, radicalism, skepticism, anti-vaxxers, etc. Yes, uh, he went on. It's that online radicalization, the explosion of online and technological devices in people's hands, twenty-four-seven, on top of the pandemic, which has effectively led to a lot more people uh, spending t uh, time on those devices, locked in the rooms, away from their protective influences. <laughs> so. Uh, Yes, anyway, uh, what what was this all about? Well, look, he was promoting a new website. Uh, it's uh, actearly.uk, uh, and this is it. So is someone close becoming a stranger? Uh, and it's uh, got all the usual suspects on there for providing support to people who are apparently being radicalized by this type of uh, so-called misinformation. Uh, and that's what he was, uh, was really promoting here. But uh, I just want to highlight Tim Hayward from Edinburgh University. Uh, of course, he's saying this on Twitter this morning, given the impossibility of coherently defining either anti-vax or conspiracy theory, let alone prescribing them. This is a simple demand for arbitrary powers of a police state from Metropolitan Police counter-terror chief Neil Basu. 
so that's what uh, Tim had to say. Uh, I would add to that that, of course, when these types of statements are made and they generate uh, a huge response from people, either positively or negatively, this is very easy for governments to follow on social media and they can track the, the migration of the, of the various discussions and debates mm -hmm. uh, across social media. Looking at the data analytics, so this is a good way to see if their messaging or their sort of intimidated, intimidating statements uh, projecting towards the public, uh, if they're effective or not in, say, let's say, chilling speech online. If you combine that with the sort of propensity of Silicon Valley monopolists to deplatform, to censor, especially around the, quote, anti-vax issue, Mike. Uh, you put that together with the government sort of uh, uh, messaging, and you can see that they could actually track to see how effective the chilling effect on, on free speech is. Well, well, I mean, they, they could and they are because they're spending huge amounts of money on it. You know, we've now got something like 14,000 people working for the Cabinet Office. A large number of those are working for the Rapid Response unit in the Cabinet Office. There's also a counter disinformation unit inside the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. We've got 77 Brigade with thousands of people sitting at waiting in the wings, as well as thousands of people actively deployed. We've got 13 signals doing this as well. The, the government has built this massive uh, network of Integ people. Integrity initiative as well, same uh, type of thing. Well, yes, but yes, indeed. Mm. Uh, and, and this is one of the things they do. Of course, the, the Foreign Office also has a counter disinformation and media development department, which we've highlighted many times in this program. Uh, and uh, one of the things that they can be shown to be doing is they pump information into the Ukra Ukraine, for example. It comes back to the West, into Europe, the UK and the US, uh, and is then tagged as being Russian disinformation. But it has begun in the Foreign Office. So it, it's, it's a, spectacular, uh, a spectacular mechanism they have operating here. The, the last thing I'll say about um, uh, Assistant Commissioner, is he still Assistant yeah, Commissioner? Yes, still, yes. Uh, Basu's comment is he's trying to frame uh, quote, anti-vax and uh, think, get, uh, skepticism on vaccines. He's trying to frame that as a fringe uh, belief or as sort of as a fringe element of society. The, the irony of that is in the last few months, it's becoming mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, we've never seen so many people interested in this topic because the government is pushing it so aggressively mm -hmm. and uh, the press is ignoring it. But as we'll show later in the program, Mike, uh, you can see how mainstream it's becoming, mm. this level of skepticism. It goes right up to the highest media publications uh, in the world. Uh, but of course, what he's calling for is an end of freedom of speech. He's calling for censorship. Uh, well, he's not the only one doing that. We've been highlighting that as well. But here's another group, uh, some of us. They've got a petition running at the moment. Uh, UK government, no more anti-vaccine lies, rein in big tech now. So this is a, a petition uh, designed to generate... Uh, pressure on the social media companies to start taking down uh, content straight away. Now we're going to show in a second that that's exactly what's going on. But first of all, who is some of us? Well, here they are. Uh, some of us is 16.9 million people from globally uh, stopping big corporations from behaving badly. That's what they say <laughs> they're about. Uh, they say this. The majority of our support comes from remembered donations. In 2016, we received over 286,484 contributions with an average gift of $14 US dollars. Uh, but it's not quite as simple as that uh, because they go on to say some of us also partners uh, with a number of foundations and NGO groups, including Tides Foundation, Changing Markets, Hull Family Foundation, Open Society Foundations, Packard Foundation, Wallace Global Fund, Sunrise Project, 
Park Foundation, Luminate, uh, Omidire Network, Transport and Environment, and Reset. Now, this isn't the same reset that that uh, is from the World Economic Forum, but it's uh, of the same mind, shall it's, we say? It's the same agenda. Yes. Yeah. And we, we highlighted the Park Foundation pushing out paid for news in the Guardian uh, via the Guardian.org, really un uh, misleading information about the 2020 elections and open society f foundations. That's regime change operations and the Tides Foundation, this is the same sort of thing. Uh, yes, and we'll be uh, discussing Open Society Foundation a little bit more later in the program. Uh, now, uh, I was, was it last week, Patrick, on this, on this Friday last week, we were talking about the possibility that uh, Barack Obama might become uh, the UK ambassador mm. to the United States should Joe Biden finally become president. Um, and well, I was a little surprised to see that he was getting quite a lot of airtime on the BBC this week. Big media push uh, through UK media outlets. So he's, they're definitely priming the soil for the, uh, the arrival of, uh, of, of Barack Obama uh, to the UK. Um, so the BBC Arts uh, did this segment here. We're gonna play a short uh, video clip and uh, pay attention to what he's saying. Listen very closely. And we'll talk about the content of this in a second. You know, I think the, the debate that's been taking place here about, you know, the kinds of uh, crazy conspiracy theories and what some have called truth decay, right, where facts don't matter, uh, you know, everything uh, is fair game, everything goes. That has contributed enormously uh, to these divisions. And it's, it's going to take more than one election to... Uh, reverse those trends. Uh, it's going to require work uh, at a local level as well as national level. It's going to require not just political work, but cultural work uh, to get people to listen to each other, think more critically uh, in evaluating information. Um, I think at some point it's going to require uh, a, a combination of, of regulation and uh, standards within industries uh, to get us back to the point where we at, at least recognize a common set of facts before we start arguing about what we should do about those facts. Wow, that's quite, so we've got, to rec we've got to recognize a common set of facts. That's right, that's right. One of the unfortunate byproducts of uh, the ascendancy of Joe Biden is that uh, Barack Obama is out doing, uh, out and about doing lots of things and talking and saying lots of things. He's very verbose, a lot of verbiage, but it's hard to work out what he's actually, there's anything meaningful in there. So we, we did delve into his discourse a little bit. We'll do a little discourse analysis here. Uh, this is the first thing that we flagged up here that you should pay attention to. It's going to take more than one election to reverse those trends. He's talking about uh, the, 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 the bad facts out there circulating in the ether, and it's going to require work at a local level as well as a national level. What does that mean, work at a local level as well as a national level? Well, this, this is big society kind of, Tony Blair kind of third way mentality, get the government narrative right down to the very local uh, uh, level. And then there's nothing, there's nothing from local up to national, up to international. There's no disparity in, in opinion. Yeah, work, it's gonna require work. Yes. So very, very kind of Marxist uh, approach to him, That's, this is who he is. 
So he says it's going to require not just political work, but cultural work as well. What's he talking about there? Culture wars, Patrick. Absolutely. He's talking about the culture wars. So Obama's long march from institution to institution through schools. And again, like you said, the, uh, the big society uh, approach uh, as well. And then finally, we, we flag this up quite concerning this bit. I think that, here's what he's saying, I think at some point it's going to require a combination of regulation and standards within industries, he's talking about getting the truth, uh, to get us back to the point where we can at least recognize a common set of facts. So uh, regulation and standards on facts. So this, this is what he's proposing. So he, what he's really proposing there is, is really this, Mike. It's, it's a ministry of truth, mm. uh, this sort of concept here. Uh, make no mistake about it, this is ex exactly what he's talking about. And really, this is what we have. De facto, this is what we have with a total monopolization on the Silicon Valley level, Twitter, Facebook, Google, those three companies alone moderating political discourse globally, uh, at least in the English language sphere, but in, in other languages as well. Mm -hmm. So a tremendous amount of centralized power, one single political ideology that's binding those firms uh, together with the current, well, what, what might be the current ruling party in America, the Democratic Party. Uh, so you can see a wave of deplatforming, a wave of censorship, uh, a wave of uh, marginalizing anybody that doesn't have what uh, Barack Obama is referring to as a, as a common set of facts uh, for everything. So it'll be the, the fact checkers are, are really uh, in charge. What, what are the fact checkers? They've become a kind of a swarming a propaganda kind of brigade online. Well, they become the modern day uh, Spanish uh, Inquisition, don't they? Yeah, so it's death by a thousand fact checks yeah. uh, politically. Yeah. So, uh, in, you know, in terms of where, where do we go from here? Well, let's take a look at uh, this. This is actually relevant. What we're talking about right now, we'll talk about the uh, Donald Trump legal case in terms of challenging the votes. But here's a good example I want people to look at. If you, if you use Twitter, look at the trending stories and the trending hashtags over in the right-hand margin. You see stories like this. This came out yesterday. Headline, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Michigan, according to fact checkers mm. and state officials. Now that looks like they're debunking actual evidence, right? Is, isn't that how it's framed? Yes. Well, that's not actually what it is. Let's take a look here. Uh, this is what the fact checkers are claiming. And really, if you read the fine print, claims of voter fraud are unsubstantiated according to fact checkers and journalists. So no election officials really, uh, no, no, nothing of any weight, nothing in the courts, nothing to do with the cases that have been filed by Donald Trump's legal team, according to fact checkers and journalists. And who are the fact checkers? They're kind of hourlies working for some of these newspapers that delegate, they delegate out these, these fact checkers. Well, well, there's that, but there's also the, the journalists that can't get a job with a, a mainstream media outlet that have gone to some of the fact-checking organizations like Full Fact and, and other places like this that are setting themselves up as the arbiters of truth for the entire planet. And, and they, they, have no, they have no claim to any, uh, a, any greater ability to discern a fact than any other member of the public. Yeah, we don't know what their core skills are or their competency or anything. So if, if, you're, in the, if you're a journalist in the fact-checking uh, business, that's like the gutter of journalism. <laughs> That's like if you couldn't make it as an auto mechanic, you, you, you become a car clamper. You know, this, this, is, this is the dregs of journalism. Let's take a look at another story. Look at this one. This is even better. Headline, look at this headline. Thousands of dead people did not cast votes 
in Michigan or Pennsylvania. CNN and factcheck.org report. So they're, they're, they're creating a straw man argument here. Uh, nobody from any official uh, corridors have, have said that there are thousands of dead people in Michigan or Pennsylvania. I have heard that thousands nationwide, however, have casted votes. That might be provable. But let's look at this. What are they talking about? Are they debunking official data here, Mike? It looks like it, doesn't it? They pretend they are. Well, let's let's read the fine print. This is a, this is CNN, by the way, so don't be surprised. What are the fact checkers up to here? Here's CNN's Daniel Dale. My CNN colleagues looked at 50 of the names on a viral MAGA list, supposedly showing 14,000 Michigan cases, uh, dead people casting ballots. So they, they took a MAGA, uh, a, a Trump MAGA viral list of names and they fact check that. Mm -hmm. They're not fact checking the official uh, documents or the election rolls in the state of Michigan. So, so you see these constantly. They're generating headlines out of these fact check stories and they're using it to sort of downplay or sort of uh, deflect from the Giuliani case uh, from the Trump's legal team, all the cases they're filing in like eight different states. So just, just so people are aware, when you look on Twitter, you look on social media, you see these headlines, read the fine print and see what they're actually claiming is usually very different than what you see in the, in the headlines. Um, now, of course, uh, some of the voices that are either not getting the opportunity to be heard in the first place or being actively shut down are coming from the medical profession. Um, so first of all here, uh, we've got a little bit of audio for you to listen to. This is Dr. Uh, Roger Hodkinson. Uh, he is uh, uh, an epidemiologist of a kind, uh, uh, in Canada, and he was giving evidence to uh, a government uh, uh, panel, a government committee uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, that was then secretly recorded and it has appeared on the internet. Uh, and I'm just going to play a little bit. You can, you can find this for yourself in its entirety, but it's worth listening to everything that he has to say. But just uh, let's just have a listen to this. The bottom line is simply this. There is utterly unfounded public hysteria driven by the media and politicians. It's outrageous. This is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on an unsuspecting public. It's politics playing medicine, and that's a very dangerous game. Masks are utterly useless. There is no evidence base for their effectiveness whatsoever. Paper masks and fabric masks are simply virtue signaling. I do want to emphasize that I'm in the business of, te of testing for COVID. I do want to emphasize that positive test results do not, underlined in neon, mean a clinical infection. It's simply driving public hysteria and all testing should stop unless you're presenting to hospital with some respiratory problem. Well, that's a few excerpts from what he had to say from the evidence that he gave, and it's pretty clear Masks are no more than virtue signaling. Testing, as we've been making the point for a number of weeks, Patrick, uh, testing proves nothing. And he's saying very clearly that test, mass testing is simply driving the hysteria. Uh, that's absolutely clear. But uh, the likes of Dr. Hodkinson in Canada doesn't get a voice in the mainstream press at all. His qualifications, uh, by the way, are ironclad. Uh, yes, they are, because he's, he's, he's uh, uh, got a good reputation. I mean, he's got a, ha, held senior positions within industry bodies mm. in this type of area, and he's uh, a, a chairman of a company which is providing COVID-19 tests, amongst other tests. He's also chairman of a company that provides tests for 
uh, cancer and so on. So he is, mm. he is a, significant, uh, a significant doctor. But his comments about masks, uh, Patrick, uh, are pretty much uh, echoed in, uh, in your survey here on the wearing of masks. Yeah, this is one of our Rasputin polls uh, that we're running at uh, 21 Wire on Twitter. It's not finished yet. The poll's still open. So get in there. Get in before the 4 a.m. Uh, deadline before all the mail-in ballots pour in. But get your vote in. This is a new survey. Do you believe that wearing masks in public, at school, in your car, etc., is saving yours and other people's lives from a deadly pandemic? And surprisingly, Mike, uh, we're so shocked at the result here. 12.8% uh, of the respondents have said, yes, the masks are saving lives. But unfortunately, and this is uh, quite worrying, Mike, 87.2% uh, say, no, it's all theater. Uh -huh. So we're so shocked. And that's 3,200 uh, respondents so far in that sample. Not a bad sample size, slightly biased maybe towards uh, our, our viewpoint of the news, uh, of course. Uh, so you have to wait for the bias, Mike. Um, but you know, 87% say masks are all theater. <laughs> so I think that, that, that's a little taste of, of what's out there uh, in the public. Do you think, I, I think a lot of people wear masks just because they don't want to get hassled. Uh, because yes. they just want to get from A to B. They don't necessarily believe that it's effective, believe that there's a deadly pandemic out there, but they don't really have the time or you know, they don't need the interruptions in their life uh, to try to buck the system on that. I think that's absolutely right. Now, another uh, doctor coming back to the UK now who is speaking out and being censored is Dr. Mike uh, Yeadon. So let's just uh, have a li quick listen to uh, a video, just a short clip from a video that he uh, put out this morning. And so I became very perturbed about increasing restrictions on the behavior and movement of, of people in my country. And I could see no reason for it then, and I still don't. Government's response to emergencies is guided by you know, the scientific group who sit uh, together under the Strategic Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE. So they should provide scientific advice to the government about what's appropriate to do SAGE has got several fundamental things wrong and that has led to advice that's inappropriate and uh, not only has had horrible economic effects but has had continuing medical effects in that people are no longer being treated properly. So people are no longer being treated properly. Now that was uh, put on YouTube uh, and it's a full uh, five or ten minutes uh, video that was put onto YouTube this morning. Uh, and quick as a flash, uh, here we've got a tweet. Sadly, unlocked UK interview with Michael Yeadon uh, on the government's mismanagement of the pandemic has been removed from YouTube. Uh, they cite COVID-19 medical misinformation policy. Please share. Um, so if you would like to share, this is a, a fantastic little video clip. I absolutely encourage everybody to share it. It's by Unlocked uh, and they can be found on Facebook. Uh, and you can find them at that address, uh, that bit.ly address, which is 3K, and then the rest are all capitals, U-J-O-Z-G. Go and watch that video, share it as widely as possible. It's also popping up on alternative YouTube channels. People are, are taking it and, and distributing it. Uh, get it shared as widely as possible. Yeah, and I might add, uh, Michael Yeadon is a former colleague of Sir Patrick Valance, uh, government's chief science advisor. So his qualifications are you know, amazing. He worked for Pfizer. He worked for some of these 
these companies still is, is a consultant in the international arena, taking a huge risk, by the way, professionally, to be taking the public position he is on COVID and lockdowns and things like that. But how could YouTube or Google just dismiss uh, a highly decorated professional like this who is making statements that are completely within the, the realm of the, the factual realm, uh, and then they're censoring it? Uh, because it's medical di dis misinformation or something like that. I mean, it's preposterous what Silicon Valley, are, th th they are the arbiters of what's true and what's not, when clearly they can be proven to be absolutely wrong. So you have to ask the question, Mike, if one of the main advertising clients of Google and Twitter are the giant pharmaceutical companies, are they censoring uh, for the, you know, in, in terms of the interest of their client, their paid clients, their advertising base, that affects their, you know, helps their share price to be buoyant. Is that why they're censoring all these videos on behalf of Big Pharma, Twitter, Google, YouTube, maybe Facebook, we could put in that category as well. Is that what's motivating them? Because I think that it is. Because clearly that is not medical misinformation. So I think they're being leaned on by their clients. That's my personal opinion. It's not just their clients. I think we reported a few days ago now that uh, that their, the Labour Party was calling for the, for the the platforms to re, to react much more quickly whenever the government asked them to take information down. So yes. there's that as well. So and, and, so that just just by making that statement, the Labour Party is acknowledging acknowledging that there is a mechanism in place for the government to do that. And, and who's lobbying the government? Big Pharma. Big Pharma. So I think I think you're right to, to to point the finger at the government as well. They're they're the ones putting the direct pressure. But behind all of this is the transnational corporate cartel, uh, I believe, that's pressuring social media, is pressuring government, and then you have this kind of uh, tsunami of pressure, and that's ending up. And we're not getting the right information through the main platforms that have a monopoly practically over information. Uh, and it's not just doctors speaking out uh, and perhaps getting censored or at least criticized. Uh, the Freds as well, right, said Fred here on uh, Sky News. We're not COVID deniers, uh, but we're living like but living like hermits is killing the country as a headline. Uh, but the fact that they even have to make the statement that they're not COVID deniers tells you the type of environment that we're living in at the moment. Uh, and uh, Fred said, my position is I'm not a COVID denier and I'm not anti-vax, but I defend those people's right to express their opinion. That's all it is. So there's another march at the end of this month and we're gonna to go to that as well. Now they, they attended one of the protests and they got heavily criticized for it in the media and on social media. Uh, and he said, uh, uh, you know, with free speech, it's either you believe it or you believe in it or you don't. You can't have it both ways. You can't say I believe in free speech, uh, but you can't say what you want to say it's not conditional. So yeah. his, his point is absolutely clear and, and well made. Uh, and it's not just doctors speaking out and it's not just doctors being criticized. And when people have the guts to speak out, they should be uh, encouraged and uh, applauded. Those, those celebrities, those high profile artists who are uh, making their views known, who are voicing their opinions, um, that's, I think this is a great thing. Hopefully we'll see more. I think Ian Brown from the Stone Roses, mm. he's come out quite, quite strongly on Twitter uh, against mandatory vaccinations, against lockdown and things like that. And he's also citing the fact that, you know, people in his, his own family uh, have been affected by this medically, um, you know, by not having, you know, the full access to everything. So mm. this is affecting even celebrities. So hopefully we'll see more of them speaking out as well.
Okay, now if you uh, like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Now, uh, yesterday David Ellis produced an Ellis report. It's on the uh, front page of the UK Column website just there. If you would like to uh, go and watch it, then please do. Absolutely encourage you to do that. Uh, and really it adds some context to the last two Ellis report programs that he has made uh, because of course we were, he was uh, focusing on the uh, increase in budget for the uh, Ministry of Defence and uh, Britain's defence spending and what it's being spent on. Now, it's being spent on space, uh, Patrick. It's being spent on cyber, uh, but it's also being spent on disinformation and misinformation. Uh, uh, David's focus yesterday was on the space aspect of it. Uh, and, uh, well, of course, the UK uh, wants to be the sort of glue that binds together the US, the EU and the UK, NATO, basically countries, uh, by providing a, a network of satellites up there which are uh, helping to direct F-35s, uh, uh, also drones, uh, and keep the communications running. Uh, can you imagine what that might be called? Nope. Skynet. So, uh, appropriate... Inter interesting yes, choice appropriate of name. name. Yeah. Yes. So do, do watch that and share it if you possibly can. Now, uh, Patrick, let's come on to the, uh, the US election. Uh, and of course, absolute silence from the mainstream press about the progress of the, uh, the various lawsuits and so on at the moment. That's right. Um, only, only last night have, have I seen the first headline acknowledging uh, that Donald Trump is uh, pursuing legal cases have been filed in, uh, in multiple states. And, uh, but most of it's just negative coverage trying to, to, to squash it. Uh, negative coverage or sometimes uh, some fact checkers coming out and, uh, and telling us that uh, all the, the uh, comments about vote fraud are conspiracy theory and so on. Well, uh, here's an example of it. Uh, this is uh, the website Great Game India and th this really seems to be the source of this particular story about, the, uh, about election fraud. Uh, the headline is Intel US military raided Skittle uh, servers in Germany for evidence after vote switching scandal. Now this uh, headline and this topic is absolutely denied by Skittle themselves. Uh, so this is what Skittle have to say. This is Skittle's website keeping up with the latest election industry news. Uh, and uh, well they had this to say, following several erroneous statements that have been published in digital and social media, Skittle would like to clarify the following. The technologies implemented by Skittle in the US are both hosted and managed within the US by a local subsidiary SOE software based in Tampa, Florida. We do not tabulate, tally or count votes in the US. We do not provide voting machines in the US. We did not provide online voting uh, to US jurisdictions for the US elections. Uh, we do not have servers or offices in Frankfurt. Uh, the U.S. Army has not seized anything from Skittle in Barcelona, Frankfurt, or anywhere else. So that all seems pretty clear. Uh, but then uh, they made a, a couple more statements what I which I thought were quite interesting, and I wondered why they were making them. Well, the first one was this. We are not owned by George Soros and have never been connected to him. So there is a, a story going around that George Soros is somehow uh, involved in this election fraud process. Uh, and so we're going to have a look at what that might be in a second. Uh, and then they said, we are not tied to Smartmatic, SGO, Dominion, or Indra. So I suppose Smartmatic is the company which is getting the most uh, coverage at the moment. And Dominion as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I, I'm just going to say on the surface, this also could, some of this could be spun public relations. Yes. So they could be tied or in linked in some way or previously 
uh, to these companies or through people. Yes. Uh, and maybe they're not disclosing that or they don't want their shareholders to panic here. So we're, we're going to take everything with a pinch of salt because they are under pressure. Uh, we absolutely are. But the key word from this particular uh, comment is Smartmatic, which we're going to come on to in one second. And also George Soros, which we're going to come on to in one second. Uh, and they also felt the need that they had to say that they had no ties with Russia either. And I, I kind of felt that that was really uh, put in there to try to imply that the whole vote fraud uh, narrative is a Russian narrative. Yeah, they're, 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 they're injecting that Russian talking point in there uh, to, it seems like, to pander or cater to the kind of hysterical uh, liberal uh, crowd out there. Yes. So um, one of the people that has joined Trump's legal team, who is getting virtually no uh, serious uh, coverage in the mainstream press, uh, is this lady, Sidney Powell, uh, and she made the statement a couple of days ago, Trump won the election not by thousands of votes, but by millions of votes uh, that were shifted by the Smartmatic software. So she is making an allegation that Smartmatic has been involved in moving votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. So who is Smartmatic? Well, here they are here. Uh, and uh, this is their website, US Elections 2020. Misinformation is dangerous, they say, get genuine, uh, accurate facts about Smartmatic and its technology. So you can do that by going to their website. Uh, but uh, the problem here is who's sort of running Smartmatic? Who's in charge? Uh, well, this gentleman is, uh, is uh, Admiral Peter Neffinger. He's retired. He's uh, Atlantic Council. Uh, oh. And he's the president of Smartmatic. Hmm. And strangely enough, he's now on Joe Biden's transition team. Whoa, fancy that. Is that a fact? That is a fact. That's not a fake fact. So any of the fact checkers that want to check that will find that it's true. So uh, this is uh, one point. The next point is the chairman. And some people may recognize him because he's British. Uh, and he, of course, is Mark Malik Brown. Uh, he was part of the Tony Blair government, if I remember rightly. That's Lord Malik Brown that to you. That is Lord Malik Brown to me, indeed. Um, and, uh, well, who is Lord Malik Brown? Well, he unfortunately sits on the global board of the Open Society Foundation. Uh, is that George Soros' Open Society Foundation? That is George Soros' Open Foundation. Uh, and, well, he's not just on the global board. Uh, he was formerly vice chairman of Soros's investment funds. Oh. So I'm afraid this is a very close, direct link to George Soros. It's, it's not something that can be denied, except that the Open Society Foundation wants to deny it because what you're seeing on screen at the moment was screenshotted from the Wayback Machine. Because if you look at this page on the George Soros website, oh. uh, you get that the page that I'm looking for doesn't exist. So for some reason, maybe it's, they've moved it somewhere else perhaps and I just didn't uh, find it. But uh, for some reason, they don't want to acknowledge uh, Mark Malik Brown. Uh, but uh, we should also remember that it's not just George Soros that Mark Malik Brown is very close to, but also Barack Obama. So he's Samantha Parr, who was uh, his, uh, part of Obama's pres presidential campaign. That's Mrs. Cass Sunstein to you. Okay. Uh, and uh, she said this in 2008 to the Times that Malik Brown was the principal conduit between Britain and Barack Obama during his first presidential campaign, a relationship that has persisted. Oh, really? So, so Patrick, I'm having a bit of a problem here uh, because we have Mark Malik Brown as the chairman of the company, which is right at the center of the allegations of voter fraud, um, who is linked to Barack Obama, very good friends with, 
also British establishment. He's a member of the House of Lords, formerly in Tony Blair's government. Um, but we've also uh, got large British involvement in the whole Russiagate thing through Christopher Steele and Richard Dearlove and, and, and this crowd. Um, so where is the election interference? Is it Russia or is it Britain? Well, it certainly stacks up that it's, uh, it's, it's Britain. And by the way, it also came out uh, the, uh, the, the, the role of GCHQ as well uh, in the disclosed FBI uh, documents as well early on in that process. Uh, so they, they were mentioned uh, in the FBI documents as well. And then the GCHQ uh, director resigned very shortly after that, Hannigan, uh, Mr. Hannigan, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, there's a lot of um, British meddling in US politics, Mike. Um, right. Well, look, I had intended to put another uh, slide in here for for uh, a political article. I will put the link to the political article in the description of the video below uh, after the news program. So I apologize that I've missed that one out, but I'll just tell you what it said, uh, because it said it also came. This is uh, this is uh, Smartmatic also came under scrutiny in the Philippines, where authorities charged three of its employees with illegally altering code on an election server during that country's 2016 national election. Smartmatic told Politico it had never had ties to the Venezuelan government, uh, but uh, simply supplied voting machines used in elections there. It also disputes the Philippines' charges. So one of the uh, issues here is that, that this claim that uh, uh, votes are being tallied outside the United States. Do you, do you hold that as, as a serious claim? Um, I think everything is possible. I don't trust any of these corporations. Statements by the corporations is not uh, any sort of ironclad defense on any of these accusations. This will have to be fleshed out in the court of law. If they're wrong, if Sidney Powell's wrong, if they're not telling the truth, or they're making accusations that they can't uh, defend, uh, then there'll be massive libel suits, no doubt, uh, after this is all over. So we'll see. I mean, being lawyers, are they that reckless? Are they that careless? Uh, I don't know. We'll find out, won't we? Um, now, uh, all the news where there was news about uh, Rudy Giuliani over the last day or so has been about uh, running makeup. And uh, well, we'll see a little bit of hair it. dye. Yes, hair yeah. dye. We'll see a little bit of that in a second. But the thing here is for me, Patrick, that uh, Rudy Giuliani has been running live stream reports pretty much daily mm. uh, since the election. Uh, giving people updates on the progress of the various court cases and, and the various allegations of the affidavits that are being built uh, and, ri and written. And there's been no mainstream coverage of this whatsoever. No, they just ignored Complete it. Complete silence. They've ignored it. They're, not, they're, they're t totally derelict in their duty as journalists. So their attitude, Mike, is we don't want to know about this. Joe Biden's president. Go away. Uh, they don't want to know about any of the 1,000 witnesses and hundreds of pages of sworn affidavits under penalty of perjury, by the way. Uh, so those will all be submitted. Those are all going to court and uh, cases in eight different states, Mike. Uh, well, indeed, and Giuliani talking about that. So let's just listen to a few seconds of this. If I, if I might speak for just a minute. In terms of the level of corruption we are looking at here, we have no idea how many Republican or Democratic candidates in any state across the country paid to have the system rigged to work for them.
these people didn't do this just to take control. They make one heck of a lot of money off of it. Think about the global interests behind your own news organizations. Think about the pressure being brought to bear on, from the social media companies to shut down free speech on any challenge to the election. This is a massive, well-funded, coordinated effort to deprive we the people of the United States of our most fundamental right under the Constitution to preserve this republic that we all cherish. Well, of course, that wasn't Giuliani, that was Sidney Powell, but uh, I'll show the Giuliani clip now, but, well, uh, powerful. but that was a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, that, that she's talking about an international coordinated effort. She's including corporate mainstream media in that, and as we said before, by their sort of uh, censorship by omission, Silicon Valley by direct uh, censorship, mm -hmm. pulling down news articles, suspending the account of America's fourth largest newspaper in circulation, the New York Post, because they uh, printed a story about uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, about the uh, hard drive, the laptop, and the information that was uh, given to the New York Post there. The, the FBI have had for a year, by the way, and they've been sitting on it. So this is another complaint that uh, Giuliani has. Uh, yes, yes, it certainly is. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just listen to one of the things Giuliani was saying yesterday. In the states that we have indicated in red, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Arizona, we more than double the number of votes needed to overturn the election in terms of provable illegal ballots. All you gotta do to find out if I'm misleading you at all is to look at the lawsuits. Look what's alleged, look at the affidavits, Maybe we can supply more affidavits. In order to do it, I have to get permission from the people. But in the materials I have here, there are at least 10 that come from citizens. We have, we have a thousand at least, and we're getting more every day. And there are other aspects of this fraud that at this point, I really can't reveal. <laughs> this is really enough. It's enough to overturn any election. It's disgraceful what happened. And I'll conclude by asking you to just think about this for a minute. What happened on the morning of November 3rd when they were going to count the, these, this new kind of ballot, this mail-in ballot? Did every Democrat leader in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in Wisconsin and in Georgia and in Nevada and in Arizona, they all wake up and all separately have the same idea? Do they all separately have the idea that we are going to, we're going to put Republican inspectors in pens? We're not going to let them look at mail-in or absentee ballots? They all independently come up with that. Like, just by coincidence. Well, he has a point. It's a bit of a coincidence. More than a coincidence. If it was just two states, that would be a coincidence. Three, four, five, six six different states, same exact series of events happening. Um, it's, it's hard to believe that's, that's not coordinated. Uh, and it would be at the highest level, as he said, at the, uh, the Democratic uh, DNC level and the Biden campaign itself. So, so, uh, so uh, what are the time scales now then? When's the, when does the Electoral College uh, meet? Well, that's just around December 14th. I believe that's the date. So that's when uh, each state sends its electors. 
uh, to the Electoral College uh, to vote. And generally, it's the honor system. So whichever candidate won whichever state, they'd be submitting their electoral votes mm -hmm. according to who won. Even if the elector themselves is a Democrat, they would uh, give their vote for Trump because it's based on the winner-take-all uh, sort of system. That's how most states work. There's only a few states that have split electoral votes. I believe they're in Nebraska and Maine. Uh, but what could happen, Mike, is uh, in 2016, a few electors turned coat and uh, Hillary Clinton supporters didn't vote for Trump from their respective state. They uh, submitted their electoral vote for Hillary Clinton. I mean, it wasn't enough. Those defectors weren't enough to change the uh, outcome of the electoral college vote in 2016. But you could see similar things happening uh, this time. I'm just saying get ready for it. We, we warned about a bunch of things that have come true and come to fruition. I'm saying that's one of the things people need to get ready for. If that happens, Mike, all bets are off. Total uh, chaos. I mean, you, you called it uh, a, a, an honor system. This is probably one aspect of the US system that most people don't quite understand. So there's a popular vote, and the outcome of that popular vote on an honor basis In then state. translates into that state's uh, electoral college vote. Yes. Um, but the electoral college doesn't have to follow that that's right. Right. So if we're if we're both in Pennsylvania, you and I, we're two electors in the state of Pennsylvania, and let's say it, it goes for Joe Biden. Let's say that uh, you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat. Um, we're both going to have to submit our vote for Joe Biden when we go to Washington on December 14th because Biden technically won the state. Mm. So even though you're a Republican, you're a Trump supporter, you're still going to have to, mm. you know, bite the bullet, you know, bite your tongue, hold your nose submit your, your vote for Biden. Uh, and so the same would be true if Trump won the state, uh, then I would have to hold my nose and bite my tongue and submit my electoral vote for, for Donald Trump because he was the winner. Whoever's the winner, you have to basically, winner takes all on the honor system, no matter what party you are, you submit your electoral vote from each state based on the winner of that state. So, right. the, so if, the, if there's a break in that tradition, that honor system is broken, then it's, you know, yes. who knows? Uh, okay, and then just one final question then. If, the, if they're meeting on the 14th of December and these court cases are proceeding uh, and they're not complete by then, uh, what happens? The, okay, now what could happen then is, um, I, I, I don't know, I'm not sure. That, right. that, that's tricky, okay. that's tricky. So, it, they, so this is unknown territory, really? This is running up against the clock, basically. Mm -hmm. This is running up against the clock. The only thing is if the preponderance of evidence was so great, it was so great and so damning and, and could potentially fundamentally shake the foundations of the country, they, would, they might consider uh, drafting some kind of a resolution to move the Electoral College vote forward, mm -hmm. okay? Um, the other thing that could happen is the Electoral votes, uh, before the Electoral College, each state representative or st state legislation state senators, state congressmen, that's within each state, not in Washington, mm -hmm. um, they could, they select the electors and the Republicans control the, the, uh, the state houses in all of those swing states. Right. So they could say, they could go and handpick, fire the electors that are already uh, traditionally uh, given that role and pick Trump loyalists because they're within their constitutional right to say, we don't believe the results of the election in let's say Michigan is legitimate based on the evidence. Now, why is this a big story? Because Donald Trump summoned, guess who, to the White House yesterday for a meeting, uh, the state senator from Michigan. 
Okay, he went to the White House. Who knows what they're talking about? I can't imagine what they possibly were talking about. Probably what we just described right now. So if, if that happens, um, th there'll be a tremendous amount of pressure on any of those state representatives uh, or state senators who are involved in that decision-making process. The mob would descend on them uh, in such an incredible way, crazy way. So that literally, I think people are... Uh, it's, 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 it will be that tense. The blowback would, they'd have to be very strong and, and very firm in their mm -hmm. convictions and beliefs that the major injustice took place here, a major fraud took place. And so even if the courts haven't decided yet, as you said, mm -hmm. the, the state legislatures could step in and, may, and change the electors so that they're loyalists to the Repo Republican Party. Okay. And that would cause a major, the media would go crazy and the, the mobs would be out in Detroit, they'd be burning Portland, so at least 10 cities would be in flames uh, based on you know, what we've seen from these uh, rioting mobs, um, Antifa, et cetera. Yes, okay, well, uh, let's uh, come back to the UK and move back to uh, COVID, uh, and let's just have a look at the latest uh, ONS statistics released this week uh, on, uh, on all-cause mortality. Um, that's uh, lockdown week 13. We're calling those lockdown deaths, if you remember. Uh, and uh, well, last time we had this on, we were making the point about the, the uh, steepness of the curve uh, at the beginning of the uh, so-called period of excess mortality uh, earlier in the year and comparing that with what we're seeing now. So there is some excess mortality there. It's not massive, uh, but where is it coming from? Well, let's uh, have a look at this. Uh, there is now some excess mortality apparently coming through the hospitals, uh, still about on the average for five years in the care homes, uh, but the largest degree of excess mortality still in people's private homes uh, and in other locations it's below the five-year average. Um, so still, uh, we're still looking at a little bit of excess mortality there, quite a bit more excess mortality in people's private homes. Why would that be? Well, we're arguing that it's because they're not getting uh, proper medical treatment uh, from the uh, from hospitals and from their doctors, um, which uh, takes us back to vaccines, uh, Patrick. And uh, COVID-19 vaccine protocols reveal that trials are designed to succeed. Yeah, this is a stunning article in Forbes magazine. I encourage people to go just look this up in your search engine uh, here. Uh, this was from a, a, few, a little while ago, but it's really important to look at. And so they looked at how the trials were designed, Mike, and you see these claims, 90% effective. Pfizer says 94% effective. You see these claims. And so the first thing to, to note is that they're basing this on a very small sample of, of patients in their uh, clinical trials, mm -hmm. sometimes less than 100. So when they say 90% effective, they, they can't possibly say in the population it would be 90% effective. They're saying according to our sample size which is sometimes is very small. Now, what the Forbes article here is saying is that within that sample size, they have gamed or rigged rigged the, uh, the system here, rigged trials. This is essentially what they're inferring. Let's look at the detail here. This unusually transparent action during a major drug trial, drug trial deserves praise. Close inspection of the protocols raises surprising concerns. These trials seem designed to prove their vaccines work, even if the measured effects are minimal, and this is the main point. How could you possibly know if it's effective? Mm -hmm. And what is the level of effective? What, what, what's the bar? Where's the bar at? If you're the vaccine company, if you're a big pharma company conducting your own trials, 
And by the way, this used to be done by the FDA mm -hmm. or the Food and Drug Administration. It used to be done by regulatory bodies, but the, the industry negotiated that they could, they could regulate themselves and just mail the report into the government for a rubber stamp. I mean, that's how much power and influence this industry has. So they say it's effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, how, do, how do you know if that's effective? Well, according to this article at, at Forbes, uh, you can't know if that's effective. So, and, uh, and we move on, Mike, and the, the vaccine conversation is, is very dependent on this. This is from the, uh, the Telegraph, I believe this excellent article here, uh, just recently here. A quarter of the people may already be immune to coronavirus even though many have never been infected. This is according to Public Health England here. Researchers believe that people with high levels of T-cells are likely to have picked up immunity from coronaviruses like the common cold. Um, I'm going to say well done for finally catching up. When, when did we first report this on this program? I think it was about six months ago. April or April May or, May or so. Or so. Yeah. Uh, that was understood. Scientific paper after scientific paper saying exactly that. Public Health England apparently have finally caught up. The Telegraph therefore has published the result. Uh, apparently it's only when it comes from a government agency that it becomes true. Well, it, at least at least better late than never. Fashionably late to the party, but better late than never. So a quarter of the people may already be immune to coronavirus, even though many of them have never been, quote, infected, a new study by Public Health England suggests. So what this says, Mike, is that, so we have in the first article with Forbes that the, the vaccine companies can't really uh, substantiate that they are 90% effective, mm. these vaccines. So you have a non-lethal seasonal respiratory virus, okay, uh, that's not, not particularly lethal uh, in exactly the same band as the seasonal flu in terms of uh, infection fatality rate, mm -hmm. more or less, okay? And then you have a, so why do, would you, A, why would you need a vaccine for it? B, how do you know the vaccine is effective? And C, with T-cell immunity, with the prevalence of T-cell immunity, natural immunity, um, how could the vaccine possibly be more effective than our own immunity, which is proven to be effective. So you have these tiny clinical lab trials by Pfizer and with, with 100 patients, and they say 94% effective. And you're saying, yes, okay, we trust you. But yeah, we have real science, Public Health England saying that no, no, half the population uh, have immunity to this coronavirus, and they've had natural immunity without even being exposed to COVID-19. Which one of those is is a, a, a more palatable scenario? And a more sensible basis for a, for a government policy. Exactly, exactly. So why are we being led down the garden path? So all this anti-vax uh, uh, fear-mongering uh, by uh, the, the, the authorities uh, targeting anti-vaxxers for dangerous misinformation, I think you can absolutely flip this, Mike, mm -hmm. and say the rhetoric coming out of government, uh, being pushed by the pharmaceutical industry, that is uh, dangerous. That is harming public health. That is siphoning off huge amounts of money uh, from you know, finite amounts of money for the, from the public and requiring people to jump through hoops that they quite frankly, should not be jumping through. Uh, well, it doesn't end there. Uh, fantastic news, Patrick, if you don't mind my sarcasm. Uh, flu vaccine is now available for the over 50s in the UK. So people aged 50 to 64 are going to get a free flu vaccine from the 1st of December, or at least it's going to be offered to them as part of an expanded flu vaccination program this winter. Free. Free, yes. Uh, flu vaccine uptake, according to the government, is higher in all vulnerable groups except pregnant women. 
uh, compared with this time last year. Provisional data published by Public Health England on Thursday, that's yesterday, suggests 72.9% uh, of those aged 65 and over, 45% uh, of those of two-year-olds and 46.8% of three-year-olds have all had their vaccine. So that's fantastic. Except why? Why do we need a vaccine? I've mentioned this on the program before. Let's mention it again. Here's the World Health, World Health Organization uh, global circulation of influenza viruses statistics. And we can see quite clearly that from week 15, week 16, there has been no influenza in the world, according to the World Health Organization. The same types of statistics are available from the UK statistics authorities, uh, the Office for National Statistics and so on. Um, there is no influenza in the world this year, according to the officials. And so why are we all taking flu vaccines? Where did the flu go, Mike? Well, we must have defeated it. It must, it must be dead. There's, no, there's only one plausible, plausible theory here, and that's that the flu has sh shape-shifted into COVID. Shape-shifted. That's the only plausible conspiracy that we can come up with, because certainly the World Health Organization has no explanation for this. It disappeared. How's that possible? It isn't. Covey scared it away, or it shape-shifted into Covey, one or the other. Yes. Can't figure it out. Indeed. Right, let's uh, move on then to Germany. And uh, Deutsche Welle, uh, coronavirus, can Germany's infection protection law be compared to the Nazis' enabling act? What a headline from Deutsche Welle. Very much so. So, I mean, this is the last thing you, you'd expect to see in the German mainstream press, but you're hearing more references to Nazi Germany in the German press, Mike. Uh, in recent weeks, uh, having to do with protests against the lockdown. Angela Merkel's going hell for leather with her new infection protection law, uh, they're calling it. So and a lot of people are saying this is uh, you know, akin to the Enabling Act. Ironically, Mike, um, this charge that this is a new Enabling Act is, is really coming from Alternative for Germany, mm. supposedly a far-right uh, political organization in Germany from the, you know, the quote, the far right, yeah. they're saying that the coronavirus lockdown laws by Merkel are akin to Nazi Germany's Enabling Act. So let's just uh, remind people a little bit of history about what the Enabling Act is, but there's a little pushback here from the Social Democrats. This is what they're saying. Uh, this is uh, Heg Lin, uh, he is a Social Democrat MP here. He's saying it must be possible to demonstrate and to criticize, but tolerance cannot go so far to accept that the infection protection law is being equated with the beginning of the Nazi dictatorship with the Enabling Act of 1933. So he's saying, no, it's not the Enabling Act. And he goes on to say, this is blindness towards the lessons of history, and it is a complete trivialization of national socialism, says Helg Lind, uh, in a social democrat in the Bundestag there. So he's basically saying, no, 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 don't talk about the Enabling Act. That's trivializing national socialism. So what he, I think what he's really doing there is trying to shut down the conversation by using sure. an emotive, uh, a, a little bit of demagoguery from the past, but he's not really addressing the actual facts. Let's take a look back at the Enabling Act here. And uh, here he is, the uh, most celebrated political figure in German history, Adolf Hitler. And uh, so on March 23rd, 1933, Adolf Hitler placed before Parliament, it called it the law to remedy the distress of the people and the Reich, also known, of course, as the Enabling Act. And this was the main 
uh, point that we pulled out of here. Laws of the Reich may also be enacted by the government of the Reich. Laws enacted by the government of the Reich may deviate from the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So by definition, uh, the infection protection laws in Germany or the uh, similar legislation here in the UK, Mike, which you have covered, uh, the Coronavirus Act and so forth, um, it's really about suspending normal rights, suspending the, the Constitution. Constitution. Yeah. So, so technically, it is, it is like the Enabling Act. So whether whether you can compare directly the current situation to national the rise of national socialism is neither here nor there. We're talking about the legislation itself. So, but uh, just quickly in in America, Mike, uh, we'll wrap up here. Uh, what's going on in America? Lockdowns are back on the menu. Uh, New York is leading the charge, of course. Uh, so let's look at what's going on here in New York uh, in terms of, well, school closures here. Bill de Blasio, the mayor, Democratic mayor of New York, is really going for it. Uh, so the headline here is de Blasio's new not remotely scientific school shutdown shows again that kids come last. And this is what she's saying, this author here. Uh, we're inching closer to the magical 3% positive number. This is the new metric by which to implement school closures, curfews, lockdowns, which for reasons unclear to anyone means that schools can't stay open. So mm -hmm. it's kind of an arbitrary line. This is the quote, the R number, I guess the equivalent yeah. of what you have with, with Johnson's R number. So I mean, what is this? The more testing you do, of course you're gonna get, you might hit the 3%. If, so if they wanna hit their 3%, the government wants to shut it down, they just ramp the testing up. Of course, because you're by ramping the testing up, you're ramping up false positives. You're, you're building a narrative. This is what the point was, that was being made by the doctors earlier on in the program. That's right. And this is exactly what city officials are saying openly that they're going to do. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the whole thing feeds each other. So just moving on, and where does, where does this head in terms of uh, how this is being seen in the public? Well, there's a little bit of pushback here, Mike. Parents and students outside of City Hall protesting school closures. They're not buying it from de Blasio uh, here. And so... Just, just to remind people, this is from the CDC, Center for Disease Control, November 19, 2020. Look at that graph, Mike. What does that represent? Well, this is a block of cheese, and uh, that's everybody there uh, in the blue slab in the middle there, that little blue sheet, that cigarette paper. That's everybody 5 to 24 years old uh, who are coronavirus, quote, cases. Uh, and also, I believe that includes pneumonia and influenza as well. And the rest, the green cheese there, Mike, that's everyone else. That's everyone above the age of 24. Mm -hmm. So why would you be shutting schools if this is what the statistical breakdown looks like? I'm not sure. Do we have that video of, of de Blasio? Uh, that's that one? Yes. 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 Okay. Let's listen, to what, listen closely to what he says about testing. This is crazy. Mr. Mayor, uh, also, could you give us a sense of you're talking about more stringent standards? Are you, are you, uh, and, and you did say uh, more testing in the schools, but uh, does that mean you would roll uh, back those, you know, the rolling number would actually have to be lower than 3% for you to bring the schools back? Is that essentially what you're saying there? No, it is not that what, what I'm saying, to be clear. I appreciate the question, Rich. We're, look, we understand that there's a bigger problem in this country and it's affecting us. We also understand our schools have been extraordinarily safe. To protect school communities, we're gonna to have to put a different, additional measures in place. We're talking right now on the, with the state on what those should be. 
One thing I can tell you up front will there be an even heavier emphasis on testing. And one thing that I'm going to be adamant about is that when we reopen, uh, everyone who comes into that uh, school building, all the kids have to have a testing consent on file so we can test them whenever we need to because testing is going to become more of the norm and it's been uh, crucial to protecting everyone. But exactly the point, Rich, that we were having conversations with the state in detail today about what that reopening standard will be, I expect that announcement to be at some point uh, this week uh, what the reopening standard will be and then we're going to apply it uh, as quickly as we can put the pieces together uh, so that we can get to that reopening. But those details are being worked on. The one thing I can say for sure is a lot of testing uh, will be necessary. Wow, so you only, get, you only get to go to school if you're testing, if you've given approval to be tested at any time? It seems like he, that's what he's inferring, but he's saying we need to test more, we need to test more. So just, they've just gone crazy uh, in terms of the power and in terms of their remit there in New York. Now, California is another Democratic-run state here, and they're really aggressive on lockdown. And let's look at what's the highlights here. New curfew order starts on Saturday there, and San Diego County health officials issuing letters, fines, public shaming to enforce coronavirus safety measures. It's got the best weather in the country, Mike. That's where all the beaches are, by the way, down in San Diego. And so large portions of Californians will soon be uh, will soon lose their unemployment benefits. So the, uh, what they call the unemployment cliff is approaching uh, at the end of December, I believe, here. So Governor Gavin Newsom is also in hot water because he attended uh, a dinner party. And so he had to do, he had to sort of prostrate himself at the, uh, the altar of public uh, shame and opinion and apologize and do a mea culpa because he attended a posh dinner, Mike, with medical industry lobbyists who are his close friends, and uh, I mean, do you want to? Do you want yeah, to see let's it? let's because because it it's, it it will make people's cringe. His confession, and, and yes, and uh, it's just a bit of entertainment for the end of the news here. Let's <laughs> let's listen to this. That a few weeks ago, uh, I was asked to go to a friend's fiftieth birthday. Uh, my wife and I, a friend that I've known for almost twenty years, and uh, and a friend that had well put a lot of time and energy into his 50th birthday. It was in Napa, which was in the orange status, relatively loose compared to some other counties. Uh, it was to be an outdoor uh, uh, restaurant. And we started the, well, the program started at 4 o'clock. It was one of those early reservations. I got there a little bit late at 4.30. Uh, and as soon as I sat down at uh, the larger table, I realized it was a little larger group uh, than I had anticipated. Uh, and I made a bad mistake. Instead of sitting down, uh, I should have stood up and walked back, got in my car, and drove back uh, to my house. Instead, I chose to sit there with my wife uh, and a number of other couples that were outside the household. And you can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you uh, because I need to preach and practice, not just preach and not practice. And I've done my best to do that. Uh, we're all human. We all fall short sometimes. Uh, we've been out, and I think, for three times since. In fact, I know it's been three times because I remember all of those dinners very, very vividly uh, since February, just three times. 
twice with my wife by myself outdoors, and then this one occasion uh, with a larger group. And there were just a few extra people there uh, than the spirit of what I am promoting. Uh, and so if we're going to minimize mixing, you got to you gotta own up to that. So uh, I just want folks to know that. Paid for our dinner, uh, and we, uh, you know, we had an early dinner, but it didn't matter. Uh, I shouldn't have been there. I should have turned back around. And uh, so when that happens, you gotta you pay the price, but you also own the mistake, and you don't ever make it again. And you have my word on that. That's great, great mea culpa. Now, so so, but he told he told a little bit of a big lie here, Mike. Uh, th thanks to uh, Fox 11, uh, one of the patrons at the restaurant here, the supposed outdoor restaurant, well, it, that doesn't look like it's outdoor to me, Mike. That's uh -huh. indoor with a sliding glass door. So why did he tell the public he was eating outdoors when, in fact, he wasn't? So his memory doesn't serve him very well there. This is called the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Average spend per head at this restaurant oh. is about $350. So it's not a budget a dining experience uh, by any stretch of the imagination. There he is right there, the governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, you know, a great role model, and uh, his, uh, his authority, his reputation is sinking like a stone right now this week, ordering everybody to, you know, lock down ridiculous social distancing measures, masks here, masks there. And then you have the government here, uh, you know, the, the head of the government, basically having a, a posh dinner with elites, with medical lobbyists, and uh, it's very M Maria Antoinette. Well, indeed it is. And just to end on a serious note, uh, Patrick, uh, mirth aside, uh, is there a country left on this planet where there hasn't been a, se a senior official that hasn't broken their own lockdown restrictions in some way, shape or form, where they're demanding that people stop working, they're demanding that people stop their social lives, and yet they... Uh, pursue their own uh, social lives as they ever did um, and the question then has to be asked do they believe their own rhetoric and I believe the answer to that is no if they believed uh, that the lockdown was required they would without there would be no mistakes being made here if they believed there was a threat to their own lives and the lives of the other people around that table they would not have gone to the restaurant yeah, it's a total facade. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, we've got to leave it there. Uh, we're well over time. Thank you very much for joining me today. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time as usual on Monday, 1 p.m. Uh, we'll see you then. We hope, we've, hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you Monday. Bye-bye.